0: Entrepreneur Circle is an on air brand's production and a proud member of the on air brand's network. Hi, this is Robert Kiyosaki. And you're listening to Entrepreneur Circle.
1: Eric Cabral. On this episode, I go beyond that Eric and I say you build your own board of directors. That doesn't mean it could mean mom and dad, but it also means who are the people that know me well professionally, personally, know where I come from, know where I want to go and can help steer me in those times of decisions we all have them we might not have all we all formed a formal board of directors where we meet once a quarter and it's not like that necessarily but you know what i'm talking about right when you have those key life decisions whether they're personal or professional or some hybrid of both who are the six to ten people you can bounce that off of where you know you're going to get an honest direct candid opinion and some guidance
0: Hey there folks, and welcome to the Entrepreneur Circle, where we built a community that shares lessons learned throughout our journeys, celebrate wins, our Eureka moments, and embrace the F-word, meaning failure. Which I've come to realize that failure is success in progress. I am Eric Cabral, your host, a husband, a father of two brilliant girls, and I've been called a heart-centered entrepreneur by my peers and mentors. My mission in life is to make the world a better place one mic at a time. So I'm happy and humble to have you join in on that mission. And I hope that by the end of the show, we would have added value in your life.
2: So if you're ready to jump into the circle,
0: let's get to it.
2: on-air brands has changed the game. There'll never be a day from here forward when you and I and our companies don't need to be on the air. Every brand needs to be on the air, but so few know that. So it's great to work with a group that are ahead of the curve and to find a company that has been built on the core foundation of the future of marketing. If you're ready to broadcast your brand like they've done for my brands, take the next step and make a change that can transform your business. Reach out to On Air Brands today. That's onairbrands.com. Yes, onairbrands.com.
0: Welcome back, folks, to the show. As always, your most happy and humble host, Eric Cabral here. And with me today, like most days, I have a brilliant individual with me that's going to share a ton of value with you, the community, Mr. Caleb Silver of Investopedia. Welcome to the show, my friend.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm looking for the brilliant person who's going to be with you, but uh, I'll stand in for now. It's really a pleasure to be with you and I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having
0: me. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an honor and it's really I'm excited to be uh, having this conversation and unpacking all you have to offer uh, for friends, family and everyone that's listening here. So, um, you know. We know you as the editor in chief of Investopedia which is a 23 year old brand as you shared with me uh obviously some legacy there that uh, was huge in my world of investing and getting into investing and um just just so 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 cool what what's been built over there so you're an investor we'll get into the type of things that you're doing individually and as a family. And then also wanted to highlight that you are the president of Cebu, which is the Society for Advancing Business Editing and Writing. You've been awarded, some of your awards include the Peabody, the Epi, and Cebu Business. And Business. You've been nominated for two Emmys. Some people have seen and heard you on NBC, MSNBC, ABC Radio as a consumer trends expert. And you're also the host of the Investopedia Express podcast, right? So we're gonna get into that as well. But again, thank
1: you so much for being here, Caleb. Appreciate it. Delighted, and I'm old, that's why I have all those accolades. I've been (laughs) in the business a long time.
0: I could keep going too. I was like, oh yeah, this is, I'm running out of breath here, but this is good. You've got so much here to to share. But I I, I wanna take the Wayback Machine and get into the Silver household. So can you paint a picture for us we're going to get into business and all the stuff that people are like, come on, we're, we, we, we're chopping at the bid here. We want to know about investing. We're going to get into that, folks. Don't worry. But I want to get into Caleb's life and the silver household. What was it like at the dinner table growing up?
1: The dinner table was always the four of us. And that was probably, you know, one of my best memories. We always ate together as a family. Dinner, dinner conversation. Bring something to the to think about, to talk about, have an opinion on something. That was that was a requisite. And you know, when you're younger, you're like, this is an absolute drag. I just want to play Atari uh, or you know, watch Love Boat back in the day or whatever <laughs> Fantasy Island. But um, now that I have kids, I have two teenage girls. It's a requisite in my house too. And it's a, it's our family bonding time. So my uh, dad's an investment banker, venture capitalist. Uh, mom is a family therapist, former public school teacher, both really good communicators, both very intellectually curious, and drove my sister and I, Claude, who's a, a superstar in her own right, to really be curious, to be thoughtful, um, to think about what we were going to say before we said it, have an opinion Opinion, and also to listen. And we learned a lot there and had a lot of laughs. So I always remember, you know, family dinners or family drives is just times of, you know, some intellectual challenge, but I'm really grateful for it. But also, you know, sharing with the, with the people that you, that you live with. And that was just great for us and, and a lot of good food, too. Yeah, yeah. What type of food would you guys normally well, mom is, is a great cook still to this day. Dad has a few dishes under his belt too, but we all had something that we brought to the table. I started in the restaurant business at a very young age at about 12 years old, back when you could do that. And the labor laws were a little looser when I started working, but I learned how to cook I cooked in a New Mexican restaurant. We grew up in New Mexico, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So a fair amount of New Mexican cuisine, fair amount of Italian cuisine. And my parents were, were uh, a So they love the South of France and they love French cuisine. So we had a good mix of it all. And, uh, so good food, good conversation, but intellectually challenging. And, you know, I'm glad that we went through those days.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, I love getting the sort of scope for this picture being painted of the Silver household because, you know, I met you through our mutual I wouldn't say mutual friend, What well, she's your sister, uh, you know, with um, with Claude. And to now know that your parents, you know, one being a therapist and one being an investment banker makes sense now because, right, this is where the space you live. This is the space that she lives in. So it's so good to, to sort of get that background in history. Um, so... As you were growing up and you were experiencing these things, you know, at the dinner table, getting the foundation set uh, for what you were about to, you know, create as your life journey, what in the investing world, you know, I know through your, your father, but other, other pieces along the way, were you sort of picking up on uh, that led you down this path?
1: Yeah. So the fact that he was an investment banker uh, meant that I was constantly learning about the companies that he was investing in. He loved to invest in angel entrepreneurs. He was a big believer and a big proponent, maybe the biggest proponent I've ever met of the entrepreneur. He just loved people who had great business ideas and wanted to manifest them. Uh, And the guy, my dad has a work ethic like you wouldn't believe, can work nonstop, standing up, sitting down in a car, uh, on a legal pad, on a computer. He just nonstop. But it was Learning about these businesses and even going with him to visit a lot of these businesses that got me curious about the way business works, about the way ideas get hatched, about the way companies get funded, about who you back, why you back, and how they get back. So I had some of that, but I didn't want to go into investment banking. I I knew there were some risks there. Uh, You know, it's a risky business for, you know, a good reason. There's high returns if you get it right. But I didn't like that. I liked a little bit more stability, but I was also working in the restaurant business at a very young age and understanding not just uh, front of the house, but back of the house, you know, how Mm. kitchen kitchens are managed on an industrial scale, how ordering works, how invoicing works, how you work with vendors, how you work with employees. And I was trained uh, by some of the most exceptional uh, people in the restaurant industry in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is a great restaurant town. And a couple of my bosses, women uh, who started and ran, run, still run restaurant empires were super influential on me in the way that they carry themselves as business people, as small business people. So I had this mix of learning about entrepreneurship, but learning the guts of a day-to-day small business. I think that confluence of things, plus my love for storytelling, kind of got me to where I am today. Yeah,
0: that's amazing. So as as you were picking up all these sort of entrepreneurial bits, and all these investing bits, uh, what, what were the things that your parents were sort of influencing you in terms of like, yeah, you should get a college degree. Cause it sounds like you and I sort of grew up in the same sort of generational where, you know, we got to get that gold watch, you know, you gotta, you gotta stick with it and you gotta, you gotta, you gotta bleed the corporate blue or whatever it was. So you sounded like you were sort of on both sides. You're like, Hey, maybe, maybe I could do my own business or maybe I can go work for, for, for a company and, and, and do, you know, what, what's sort of expected. Um, yeah. Walk us down that path. So w- when you were making those decisions and going to school and and, and what you wanted to sort of create.
1: Yeah. It's funny because I ended up doing a, a hybrid of those things. I've been, you know, a long time tenured employee at companies like a CNN or a Bloomberg, even Investopedia now, but I've also run my own production company for several years and done a little bit of both in, in, in at the same time. But there was never, not for a second, any pressure of go to college, get a job, build a career so that you can have a house and a couple of dogs and, and, and a few kids. That, that was just never a part of the thing. It was always about what can you imagine yourself being? What is, what's possible? What do you want to do? What, what do you feel passionate about? And for both my sister and I, the expectation was you're going to do well. You're going to do, you're, you're smart enough. You have the tools to do what you need to do. And the character, more importantly than the tools to succeed pick the lanes you think you want to succeed in and get after it. And never was there this, well, when are you going to get a real job? Because you know what? I had a real job when I was 12. Um, so they were never worried about that with me. I, I'm a worker. That's what I do. There, there was never a question about that. There was a question about uh, staying true to your heart, uh, not selling out, um, not, not doing something for the paycheck, right? They knew mm-hmm. the paycheck would finally come in some manifestation, um, but never doing that. So that's a, that's a lot of freedom. But it's also a lot of pressure to be like, well, I could guess I could do anything. I don't, I'm i not going in the family business, all right? I'm not gonna become an investment banker and, and work alongside my dad, David Silver and son. That's not happening. And I'm not gonna be a family therapist um, because I'm not smart enough to do that. But I am a worker and I wanted to work in communication. That I wanted to work in documentaries and, and, and mm. nonfiction storytelling. And that's kind of where the path ended up leading.
0: Mm.
1: When did you discover the storytelling side of yourself? I think early on, I mean, was, you know, I was into the movies when I was young, and I was super influenced by directors like uh, Scorsese and and De Palma and uh, Kubrick and Fellini. I got studied Italian cinema. I liked the, that a lot, but I was also really into. You know, great nonfiction storytelling, good documentaries, uh, the Jigsaws, the Gibneys of the world, uh, and the folks way back in the day that started sort of the the, the, the documentary movement, uh, Pennebaker and others. So I was always into that, and I was looking for a confluence of those types of things. I, I never thought I'd be a front of the camera uh, type of person. I, you know, I have a great face for radio. But it's funny that my career ended up being to the point now where I spend a lot of time in front of the camera. I was always felt like I was a producer, the so behind the scenes, the guy trying to make it happen and put, put all the pieces together.
0: Yeah. So, you, would you say that was like definitely something you gravitated towards, like your superpower? Like, okay, I know I can be more effective behind the scenes and sort of just move the engine forward. So, when were there dreams of actually getting into film at all?
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm in it now. I I produced several documentaries. I did a lot of documentary work when I got out of college. Started my own production company with the money I made waiting tables. Bought myself a TV camera. Traveled throughout Central and South America shooting for uh, uh, different environmental groups and Greenpeace and the Peace Corps and Ancient Forest International and you know getting you know and doing black bear documentaries. I was having a blast doing that. Um, produced a couple of live events and some concerts. But now I'm actually. A, producing a short film with the idea that I want to get start uh, feature films, and even some long form documentaries, Mm. uh, sort of in the next phase. So I come back to that a lot. As I said, I have these different interests and different uh, ways i like to combine and mix up my, you know, my careers and my passions. I spent a lot of time as the editor in chief of Investopedia most of the time. But I also want to keep that creative part of the brain working. So I'm doing that now, actually.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What's some of your proudest work that we can sort of find and, and consume?
1: Yeah, well, I helped launch the CNN Money Video Network, and that was a long time ago, but it was the early days of online video and online video news. I'm Mm -hmm. super proud of that. And mostly I'm proud, Eric, of the people that I hired and mentored to bring in in through that business who are now some of the biggest superstars in media uh, out there, some of them in front of the camera, very well-known anchors, uh, some of them producers who are just doing absolutely killer work. So I'm proud of the people and the mentoring and also the mentorship that I got. But in terms of the work itself, uh, I, I was fortunate to work on a few documentaries with Soledad O'Brien, who's a former mm. CNN news anchor. Um, she has her own production company. We did several pieces for, for CNN and for Al Jazeera America and for PBS. So uh, if you look at Black and Blue is one of them we did on uh, on police violence. Um, we did a, a, a few for uh, um, Al Jazeera on, on people who got the Medal of Honor posthumously. Very mm. interesting pieces that look at race and look at culture and look at the way those two sort of come together into the, the modern narrative, where it came from and where it's going. So, I'm very proud of that work, uh, but I also produced a few concerts, including a reggae concert back in Santa Fe, New Mexico when I was about 24, and I'm a big reggae fan, so for me, bringing artists I love from Jamaica to my hometown of Santa Fe for a concert was probably one of the coolest things I've ever done. Oh, wow. So who were some of the artists that you... Uh, that was that yeah. was Burning Spear, aka Winston Rodney, uh, one of the best, one of the greatest, and, uh, and Barrington Levy, who was also one of my favorite uh, reggae singers. Wow, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm the typical guy, I guess, in person that's, uh, yeah, I know Bob Marley or you know, the, the typical, uh, I think I, I delved into a little bit of reggae uh, back in high school. But um, yeah, I, I, I truly appreciate uh, that music as well. But uh, so you mentioned mentorship and helping people, especially during uh, your time with CNN. Um, how important is it to have mentors in your life and and people, you know, potentially thinking,
1: why would I need a mentor? It's everything. It's everything. And I go beyond that, Eric. And I say, you build your own board of directors, your Mm. personal board of directors, right? That doesn't mean, it could mean mom and dad, but it also means who are the people that know me well, professionally, personally, know where I come from, know where I want to go and can help steer me in those times of decisions. We all have them. We might not have all, all formed a formal board of directors where we meet once a quarter. And it's not like that necessarily, but you know what I'm talking about, right? When you have those key life decisions, whether they're personal or professional or some hybrid of both, who are the six to 10 people you can bounce that off of where you know you're going to get an honest, direct, candid opinion and some guidance. So I think the mentorship is massive, but also having the board there as the, you know, keep me in my lane here. You know me, you know what I'm I'm going for. You can Mm -hmm. be candid with them. You know, they're going to be candid with you. But even... The, the mentorship part is is a huge part of that. So on my board of directors are a couple of my mentors. There's a couple of my mentees too, because I helped train them. Wow. They've learned from me, so they know where I'm coming from. That's massive. Even at the age of 50, where I am today, I have a mentor. I saw somebody uh, within our parent company uh, we used to meet with on a on a monthly basis. And I just love the way he asked questions. I love the way he saw through the business. I sought him out. He's only a couple of years older than me. I sought him out and I said, I would love it if you would be my mentor. He looked at me like I'm crazy because I'm a middle-aged guy looking for a mentor. I'm, I'm, I'm of the mind, you're never too old to learn and you don't have to be sick to get better like Wayne Dyer used to say. So I always want that and I love learning from people who I think are smarter than me and I gravitate towards that.
0: Yeah, yeah. How long have you been incorporating that into your life?
1: Oh, forever. Uh for about thirty since about high school. My wow. high school English teacher is one of my mentors, one of the people kind of on my board, uh, who knows me. He knows me from when I'm 15, 16, and you know, trudging through the the uh you know the, the hills of Jamaica together and doing creative writing. And he knows where I come from and where I wanted to go as that, you know, little whippersnapper to who I am today. And so so I've I've had that practice forever.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's unfortunate. I didn't realize it until much later in life. And you and I are a are similar age. I, I just turned 49. So yeah, I knew when you referenced Love Boat and Fantasy Island, I was like, yeah, that, I grew up watching that too. <laughs> so we're probably the same age. Um, but yeah, I didn't realize that until much later. Uh, you know, I was in well into my 40s by the time I realized how important mentorship, although I didn't maybe label people as mentors. Uh, but like you said, there's, there's some, some guidance there. But finding people that are doing what you want to do or you know, they living a life that you potentially would hope to sort of model um, is is so so important, um, and and I want to get into what you're doing currently with Investopedia and how it sort of ties into into that you know mentorship type of role that it could potentially play in terms of like people who want to get into investing and they want to learn a little bit more. They want to dip their toe in, right? That It's information, right? It's, it's the hub. It's the place to go. I mean, as I was saying to you before we turned the mics on, when I was getting into real estate investing, every single thing I looked up brought me to your site, brought me to your brand. And the way you guys have figured out content and kudos and congratulations to you and 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 how the content is delivered but then also for me as a designer the ui the experience of it the videos the graphics it's just so much easier to consume and comprehend because it is could be heavy topics right it could be sort of things that are hard to understand but you guys figured out ways to deliver that so it's easier. So can you tell us a little bit, peel back the layers of like, what's some of the magic, what's some of the secret sauce that you guys have figured out so that it works?
1: Well, I appreciate that. And I think the most gratifying thing of being the editor in chief of Investopedia is how thankful people are for the site and how it helped them because that's what we're here for. We're here to answer people's questions. We're also here to build financial literacy education and investing education to help people literally understand their money and build long-term wealth. So we get notes all the time and it's literally the best part of my job. And I have some really cool parts of my job, but let me peel it back for you because you asked, we're 22, 23 years old. So that helps, right? We didn't just get here. 22, 23, 23 years old in internet years is 230 years in real life. So we've been around. The block, and the credit really goes to the four guys who started this uh, in Edmonton, right, Alberta, back in 1999, 1988, Mm. 1999. They said, "There's an internet bubble going on with these internet stocks. There's all these types of, um, uh, you know, new companies, and they're using this new uh, language of." You know, of finance, EBITDA and EBITDA margins and made up words that really came out of the lexicon that all of a sudden became part of the regular lexicon. You saw them on the nightly news, you saw them in different places. They said people want to know about this, and there's a lot more investors joining the market right now, and a lot more people who want to get in to finance. Here's an idea. Why don't we create a dictionary of financial terms, a glossary, if you will, um, and also some FAQs and some how-tos. Why don't we put that on the internet? And you know what? There's this company down in Mountain View, California. uh, There's two guys are working out of a garage, Sergey and Larry, it's a company called Google. They're thinking about indexing the internet. Maybe if we put the dictionary on the internet, these guys at Google who are working out of this little garage, maybe they'll point to it so that when people like Eric and Caleb are looking for definitions of peg ratio or compound annual growth rate or what have you, they'll point to us. Well, that was a tremendous idea. Then they added some test prep, Series 7, Series 53, Series 6. How do you get into the financial world, into the investing world professionally? That was on there too. So it became this resource. Went through a bunch of different hands. These guys sold it five or six years later. um, Built a really nice little property right there. Went through a couple of different publishers, finally made its way to IAC, that's our grandparent company, Interactive Corp. Um, They bought us about seven or eight years ago and put us into their publishing group about, four or five years later, we were put into the dot dash publishing family where we are now. There's 13 sites. We're one of them. And all the the common denominator with all of us is we're here to answer people's questions. So we own um, uh, liquor.com, how to make the best mint julep. We own very well, the third biggest health site. What do I do when I I have this this cough or what are the symptoms of X? So uh, we own 13 sites that are like that, all intent, all SEO based with the idea of helping solve people's problems. But what's very hard, Eric, is to show up every time somebody's looking for something, you know what that requires? Doing three very simple things: having the best answers answers on the internet, right? Having the best content, the most updated, the most useful, the clearest, written by experts who actually know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. No other agenda but to inform you with as few ads as possible to get in your way when you're actually looking for that content on a site that's very fast and responsive. Three very simple things is what's helping us. 23 years later, still be uh, dominant when it comes to people searching for financial and investing information. Very hard to be simple, but that's what we spend most of our time and budget on. Love it. Love it.
0: Yeah. Thanks for peeling it back. So eloquently put. You must have said that once or twice on a show. <laughs> You've got it down. It's 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 the perfect way to sort of it's tell a the script. story. But it really
1: is what it, it really <laughs> yeah. is the what what happened. And it's fascinating for me because I'm like you. I I was a business journalist. I didn't know. I was an art major, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted to make films. I wanted to be the next Fellini. But then I got into this business journalism thing and I was lost. I was at Bloomberg, which helps because they kind of just throw you into the deep end. Um, But if it weren't for Investopedia, which was around even back then in 2000, Mm -hmm. 2001, two, three, um, I wouldn't be here where I am today. Are you ready to invest in real estate but don't have the time
0: or enough education to do it by yourself? Accountable Equity helps accredited investors who are looking for tax-advantaged investments. So anyone looking for a team of professionals who hold themselves accountable with theirs and your real estate investments, Accountable Equity is your boots on the ground team. Their mission is to bring private offerings to their investors and their clients. With a team of committed and experienced investors themselves, Accountable Equity is always looking for partners to participate in alternative investments which extend beyond publicly traded equities like stocks. Accountable Equity makes alternative passive cash flow possible for more people than ever before in our economy. To find out more, visit AccountableEquity.com. That's AccountableEquity.com or look for them on LinkedIn or Facebook. That's AccountableEquity.com or Accountable Equity. That's Accountable Equity, your partner for true passive real estate investments. So being an expert, especially a consumer trends expert, and now you know, the responsibility of, of keeping things fresh, keeping it all up to date on Investopedia, what are some of the things that you do on a day-to-day? You know, what's some of the habits or the things that you check into? And you're like, okay, right away, I gotta sure. check this.
1: Sure. Well, I, uh, I, we have a great team of editors and they're experts across their field. So we have an editor who handles personal finance. She's one of the best I've ever worked with. She really understands that. We have an editor who handles investing and trading. He's terrific. We have an investor who handles insurance. Uh, I mean, an editor who handles insurance. We have editors, senior editors uh, across you know, our big sections who are overseeing their corpuses of content. There's 36,000 pieces of content on Investopedia. So it's not like Caleb Silver is responsible for all of them. I'm responsible for very few. Now, I'm the editor in chief. I'm the last word editorially. So I, you know, I have to sort of stamp them or I have to at least, you know, we have to be on the same page in terms of what our expectations are journalistically, editorially, uh, et cetera. So I I spent a little time doing that, but really we have an amazing team that handles most of that. I spent most of my time working on on brand awareness so I go on TV a lot where I'm a, a guest on on a few different shows I'm on the financial news networks every couple of weeks uh, I'm on we have a recurring segment we do with NBC news uh, streaming on Fridays where we sort of break down the week's news and look ahead to the week So I'm all about that I have the podcast the investopedia Express branding over my shoulder here, which is the what we, what I've tried to build here is a very fast Monday morning, get you ready for the week. Don't tell you what to buy or sell, but help you become an educated investor. That's the persona that I have. That's the persona that I think our readers have. They want to be smart so they can make their own decisions, but they want to know what's going on and why it matters. And then they can decide what to do for their own personal interest. So that's uh, a podcast is really about that, helping educate people, get them ready, get them set for the things that may happen this week and then have conversations with super smart people that shed light on certain topics. That's Monday mornings, the Investopedia Express. Uh, So I'm on TV, I have the podcast, I go on the radio a lot. I do podcasts like yours. Uh, I go to events when we used to go in person, I do virtual events right now where I'm a moderator or a speaker. But one key thing, Eric, is that, you know, it's not that we're just uh, a a glossary or an encyclopedia. We have so much different content on the site, a very popular stock simulator um, and lots of FAQs about investing and trading. But it's about uh, really having our finger on the pulse of the individual investor. 23 million people come to Investopedia every month, right? That's a lot of people, right? And they all have individual, very particular and personal needs. The thing about personal finance and investing, it's like, All personal. It's very personal. Just like politics, it's personal to you. Just like your health, it's personal to you. So we have a lot of people asking questions, but knowing what sort of the, you know, the masses are thinking about and asking about gives us great visibility into what concerns investors have or people have in general about their money. So I talk about that a lot and we survey our readers all the time to find out what their sentiment is. Are you bullish? Are you bearish? What are you fearing? What are you optimistic about? What sectors do you like? What stocks do you like? So I'm able to gather that information in conversation with our one and a half million daily newsletter readers and share that with the financial media and share that with the world as well, which gives us sort of this unique perch on the investing world that I don't think a lot of other brands or a lot of other publishers have. It's really cool.
0: I love that. I love I love how you so much to unpack there, Caleb. Uh, but I love how you just said you know you survey your readers, right? So you want to get you want to get the data from them so you can you can pretty much figure out what the community needs. What are they asking for, right? And let's give them let's get them what they're asking for. Let's let's figure out how we can continue to deliver this content to them, not just through our website, but now through a podcast. So I want to I want to now go back a little bit what you mentioned um, with your podcast here. So what was the final thing that launched the podcast? I know it's a you know, it's, it's a big space. Now everybody's jumping in and you guys did it and you're executing it very well. Congratulations. Uh, so so can you can you lead us up to, you know, the decisions to make it happen and then finally say, yes, let's do it. And then what's happened since?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we relate to the game, to be honest with you. We should have had this out there five years ago. I could have easily done it. Um, but it was realizing that, uh, you know, we needed to extend our platform to places where all of our potential potential readers or listeners could be, because what's our mission? Our mission is in spreading financial literacy and education and helping people learn how to invest. We want to do that and answer any questions they have. Well, the audio world exploded and we should have been there, like I said, three, four years ago. But once we decided to say once we committed to the fact that we could we knew we could do this we knew there was a space for something like this because there's a lot of great investing podcasts out there a lot of great business podcasts out there what's different about ours is we lean like everything else into the educational aspect of it right we're teachers but we're also fellow learners we want to understand these things too so once we learned that 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 space existed because you know what it exists for us on the classic internet you know there's a lot of financial publishers there's not a lot that do education right? So we knew we had that space there. We knew we had that space on social. And we knew because of the strength of the brand, everybody knows it, it Who's sort of touched this world. We knew that once we put our name on it, people would at least be curious enough to go, what, what's Investopedia up to? What are they doing? They get our newsletters, the term of the day that's been around for 15 years, or some of our other newsletters, they know us from that. But do they know where, what our perspective is today? And since I'm sort of the, um, you know, but for better or worse, the face of the brand, it was me who was going to do it. Um, But also I have this ability because I've been in this business a very long time to get very big guests who have followings, who could help us amplify the message. And so that was part of it too. It's like, what can we talk about that's different? Who can we access that's unique? And how do we package it into a way that really makes sense for the brand? And once we put all those things together, literally going from, let's just do this and then, you know registering with ACAS and getting the equipment and realizing what the cadence would be and finding a tremendous producer, who, which we found, um, uh, all of that really came together very quickly. And then it's really been about building audience and awareness and promoting what you do and getting people excited about it. And then using the podcast, Eric, to cross-promote other things. The surveys that we run, um, uh, we do contests, we give away a pair of socks every week. We let listeners suggest the term of the week. We give away a, a, a pair of the, the classic, always handsome, and you'll get a pair Love of it. The <laughs> socks. Uh, those go <laughs> to our it. listeners. And so it's become this, con- this extension of the conversation that we're constantly having with educated investors out there. And it's one of the most fun things I do all week.
0: Wow, yeah. Yeah. It's funny that you say um, for those that where they've gotten into podcasting and they realize, oh man, this is, this is amazing. I should have been doing it three, four five years ago. Uh, you know, it was obviously a little bit different, a lot different now it's evolving every single day. So I appreciate and, and, and see that you like understand like, wow, this is an amazing industry to get into because it does exactly what you were mentioning earlier in that it speaks to the individual there's something about podcasts right when we have our headphones on you're speaking one-on-one with a person right and like you said the content is so unique and personalized for them because they're looking for answers right they're looking to you to guide them on whatever their mission and goals are in their life Mm -hmm. and in their family business or whatever they're trying to do so i love that you guys are doing it and i'm curious like you said there's ways that you cross promote there's ways that you sort of give calls to action through this vehicle right it's because 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 in the past it was very written it was a written word it was a visual on the screen now it's an audio experience so are there other ways that you're sort of and i know you're 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 hitting up other media outlets and then there's ways to promote The podcast through there. Are there any sort of tactics that you guys have on the back burner or you're putting in the front that you want to sort of merge things and expand the brand in other ways?
1: Yeah, well, we definitely think that there's room for more audio journalism for us, more podcasts. Uh, Not that the world Mm. needs more podcasts, but when we look at areas that we know we care about and that we know our readers and our listeners care about, um, and we think about what we might be able to do with some of the other brands in the Dot Dash family, I think there's room for us to kind of extend, right, and become even deeper in some areas. So I wouldn't be surprised if we launched another one or two over the next 12 months. There's that. Then there's the, um, you know, the ways we use things like TikTok, uh, which, you know, we think what you want about it. I think that algorithm is pretty darn smart. Uh, there's, but I also think in the investing and trading education world there, there's a lot of junk that, that you got to wade through. Because of the strength of our brand and the history that it represents, and that just the, what it means to people when they see it, um, I feel like, uh, and I go on there and I do very straight stuff. I promote the podcast, which is the straightest thing I do, but I'll also give a term of the week and why, you know, for example, this week, stagflation, you know, a lot of people are like, I've heard that word. What does that actually mean? I actually break down what it means and why everybody's talking about it right now, very straight and simple. I don't try to be cute about it, but we try to tie in this whole concept of, the term of the week, the term of the day, through the podcast, through the newsletters, you know, use it in other newsletters. So we're constantly, you know, using this flywheel of our social media platforms, our audio journalism platforms, the classic site itself, um, and the places that I appear to just create these through lines of this is the voice of the educated modern investor who is here to help us navigate these times. That's who I want us to be, right? We were there for you when you needed us, when you were studying real estate as a young investor. We were there for me when I was a young journalist. We're there for hundreds of thousands of business students, millions of entrepreneurs. We just want people to always have that thing in their head of it's Investopedia. Oh, I'll just ask Investopedia. Um, So anywhere we can do that, whether it's audio journalism, TikTok, the site, me on NBC on Fridays, we'll do that. Love it, love it.
0: Yeah, I love I love peeling the or you know pulling the curtain back on on big brands especially because you know as small business owners, you know we basically thrive and strive to be <laughs> you know that eventually. Uh, so it's really cool to see what you guys are doing behind the scenes. Since you mentioned it, you know term of the week this week is in the first week of August. Here is stagflation. Can you can you? Let us teach us what that means.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, I think people know what inflation is. Inflation is rising prices across, you know, almost all categories. And that's kind of the period we've been in for the first part of the year really as through the recovery has, has picked up speed. Well, now the recovery is sort of losing a little bit of momentum. So you have slowing growth and you have relatively high unemployment, which we still have. But you still have rising prices. That's stagflation. That's the those are the elements that bring stagflation together. Again, slowing growth, still very hot, right? The economy's still moving pretty fast, but it is slowing from the prior quarter. And unemployment's mm-hmm. still at 5.9%, right? 15, 16 months into the pandemic here, but prices keep going up. And that that's a a troublesome place for the economy. We've seen worse. It's not extreme by any means, and neither is inflation by by any means. Um, but it can that can really represent a challenging time for the economy and for investors, because investors pay up for growth and don't like to pay for things when they feel like they're slowing down. Mm,
0: Yeah. Is that a term that just enters the lexicon or is that something that you or Investopedia makes up? Where
1: does it come from? I wish I could take credit for that. That came (laughs) from the 1970s, from the central bankers back in the 1970s, Um, you know, and they're actually experiencing that. They had rampant inflation. Mm -hmm in the 1970s we thought we think we have inflation now we don't even know they had rampant inflation gas prices were going nuts everything was costing a ton of money um cities were you know were falling apart and unemployment was high but um you know, the the economy went through some super tough times, especially during the Carter administration and afterwards. Then you had Reaganomics. I'm not going to get too deep into the history of American uh, the American economy. But then you had that when they lowered taxes, right? They tried to stimulate the economy. Um, we've kind of been in this stimulation of the economy ever since.
0: Yeah. Uh, s- since we're here, and, and I do want to get to our, uh, you know, the F word segment um, before we part, but if we did have a crystal ball, Caleb. <laughs> and things can change, right? You can look through it and you can be like, oh, I see it. But, you know, things are always shifting and things are pivoting. I'm sure the audience here wants to know, like, oh, man, what is Caleb? He's, he's an expert. What can we expect in the economy? Everything has been crazy, you know, and it's everything seems to be picking up. What what do you think personally?
1: Yeah, I think the bogey, the bogeyman is the is the Delta variant here and anything that comes after that, Um a couple of things. I think you know the economy is strong by most measures, but not everybody participated in the economic recovery. We know that, right? Those stimulus payments were helpful to a lot of families, but still, if you went into this into that recession last year, which only lasted a couple of months, but into the downturn, into the pandemic with no credit, no income, I mean, uh, not a solid income, no investments, and you didn't own equity in your home, you probably came out of this a little bit worse. Maybe there's a little bit more in your bank account, so I'm concerned about that, right? Um, But in general, It really depends on on the impact of the variant here, but I do think we've gotten better at living with it and around it. So there won't be as many shutdowns as there was. I think kids are still gonna go back to school. The economy will keep growing, but there's no way we could have kept up with the torrid pace that we were at, uh, you know, in the first six months of this year and the last three months of 2020, right? It was on fire and the government and the Federal Reserve gave all, you know, put trillions of dollars in to make it that way. That said, um, in terms of the economy, I'm hoping that people are gonna go back to work in force once school starts again. And if they were taking care of family members, that's not an issue. It's gonna be a much more flexible type of a work environment. I still think we're gonna grow. We're gonna grow through next year, right? Absent any sort of a black swan event. In terms of the stock market, we're up 100% since the lows of March of 2020, right? So it's been a pretty good run. And if you were asleep and you weren't paying attention to that and you're an investor or you were investing for the future, that was a generational opportunity but it's not too late. We always say it in Investopedia, the best day to start investing was yesterday. The second best day is today. And I don't care if the market's at or near record highs or it feels a little shaky today. If you got 5, 10, 15, 20 years to invest, start investing. Please, right? You're going to keep missing the last 12 years, right? Out of the 2008-2009 crisis, the last year out of this little crisis that we had, there's going to these things happen, but the drumbeat goes higher, 8 to 10% every year on average in the S&P 500. So I always encourage people to do that. Work with a financial advisor if you can. But I do think there's so much money in the stock market and there's so much money that is passively in the stock market, right? People through their 401ks or IRAs or just you know index funds. It's so heavy that it's going to take a lot to topple those ship. It's going to take a lot to bring it down 20 25%. We'll have corrections. We may have a crash, another bear market, count on it. But I don't think it's I think it's so heavy and big that it just can't sink beyond a certain level. So I like the future for investors in the US equity markets going out to the next 10, 15, 20 years.
0: Mm, thank you.
1: That's awesome. Thanks for the
0: insight. So the F word, let's embrace it. The, embrace the word failure. Caleb, were there anything any things that happened in your past, young, you know, mid, you know, now? Where you're like, yeah, that was, that was potentially a lesson that I learned there um, and, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Is there something you could share with us there?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's some where I'm glad it happened because I learned from it early on in my, you know, when I had a production company and I, you know, I was just kind of winging it and not papering everything. I was doing work and not, and in some cases not getting paid for it. That was a failure, the ability to run my business effectively. Um, I've had failures where I've launched ideas or programs that just fell flat. Uh, you know, whether they were video programs at, at CNN money or, or TV segments at, at CNN proper or, or Bloomberg, where I just didn't work. And I thought it was the best idea in the world and it fell flat and we canceled it. And, you know, we sort of lost the momentum and the lost the trust of, of management for a period of time there. But the failures that I think speak much more, um, clearly to me and the ones that I feel the most and try to learn from the most are my failures with people. Um, I feel like, you know, I'm, I've, I've been in this business a long time. I've managed a lot of people. I've had some tremendous experiences and proteges and, and mentees. And I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of, you know, most of that, but there've been a few instances. And I think we all have them. If you manage enough people where you just couldn't get through to somebody, or you just were misunderstood, or you said things you shouldn't have said, or you tried to bring somebody along and make it work, but it didn't, or you didn't set them up for success or when they started to fail and not meet your expectations, instead of revisiting your expectations, my expectations, you turn, right? And you shut them out. And I've done that uh, a couple of times and I don't want to ever do it again because it's debilitating uh, for them, right? It's just this emotional uh, strain and and it doesn't bring out the best in people. It didn't bring out the best in me. And I want to learn from those experiences. And I wish I could say it only happened once. It's happened more than once. And in those cases, you know, it took me weeks to shake that off, even months. And I still think about it today. So those are communication failures, but also in just relating to people. I'm super proud of the track record and body of work, but I'm hung up on a couple of those that just didn't go right. And people are people and things happen, but I feel like I could have done better and I want to make sure I learn from those.
0: Mm, yeah, I love that. And it sounds like, you know, you are on a path of of growth And, uh, you know, awareness where you're looking back in time and you're thinking, yeah, I could have probably done that better. I could have managed that person better. I could have mentored that person a little bit better. Like you, I have those thoughts, too. But we were different people then. Right. And we were experiencing life in a different period of time where we didn't know what we know now. So I'm 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 backing you up here, brother. (laughs) It's like I understand. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, hey, you're you sound like you're 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 a different person completely than whoever was having those conversations back in the day, and also whatever trials and tribulations you were going through, I'm sure affected the way you were handling the situations. Um, And I, on the other receiving end, um, having managers or people uh, in companies that were trying to guide me. I wasn't there as an, in, an individual, as an employee, um, comprehending or understanding or caring about the bigger picture. So there were two sides, I'm sure. Um, so but yeah, thank you for sharing that. That, that. that was awesome. As we begin to land this bird, Caleb, and uh, time has flown by. Uh, so I always know it was a wonderful conversation, I hope for you as well. In the context of what's happening, with the Olympic games. If you were in the Olympics, either what sport would you be in and
1: what country would you represent? Well, I would love to be a Jamaican uh, sprinter because they're awesome. Uh, no Bob sledding? Yeah. Um, but I would probably end up in the bobsled. Look, I'm a skateboarder, longboarder. So I love the oh, fact wow. that they're skating in the Olympics, but I'm also a golfer. And I just really loved watching uh, the country sort of, uh, you know, and the golfers compete for their country and just this match play championship. So mm-hmm. it's going to be some combination of skateboarding and golf, which I would like to put together into some hybrid sport <laughs> where we could actually play golf on our boards never (laughs) leave our boards maybe those cross-country boards uh, you don't really get to stop when you hit your shot maybe it's like a polo golf croquet, uh, type situation. But anyway, I, I admire all these athletes. I'm definitely not a water guy and I'm definitely not a runner. Um, so, and he put me on a board or, or put a stick in my hand and a little white ball and I'd be pretty happy. I also <laughs> love, I also love handball and I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, of, of all the sports, I feel like I could have crushed. I think it's that cause I was a goalkeeper and a lacrosse player. Uh, so it's that combination of those things that I, I think are really cool. I just think that's one of the coolest sports and, uh, you know, it's kind of been around probably for, you know, 25,000 years. So I even love it even more.
0: Yeah. Amazing. So what's uh, some of the best ways that this community can reach out and merge with your community and, uh, you know, Investopedia Express podcast, obviously, but anything else that you want people to move towards?
1: Yeah, we are wide open. I'm so easy to find. You can find my email on on our About Us page, but all our social platforms are good representations of the things that we're proud of and putting out there. So lots of learning going on on Instagram, at Investopedia, on Twitter, at Investopedia. Facebook, we have a really large community, over a million and a half people, I think, uh, uh, fans and followers there. Uh, And TikTok is our sort of growing little channel here. And I like it because... I when I find something that I'm like and that I'm actually interested in it's very good at recommending something very similar or even more useful. Uh, again, plenty to wade through there, like in every social media platform, but we're trying to grow that as well. And then for folks, if there's any business journalists out there or aspiring business journalists, I'm going to make a plug for Sabu. This is the Society for Advancing Business Editing and Writing. This is a 50-year-old organization that is all about advancing business journalism. I'm passionate about business journalism. I'm proud to be its president. And for folks who are either trying to break in or in and look to network and grow their skills and get to know other folks, I really recommend recommend uh, joining table or at least reaching out to us. So easy to find, happy to be uh, on your podcast and, and be joining you. And I think it's a real honor. And I'm glad our my sister, who's also one of my best friends, brought us together.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I appreciate her so much. And I appreciate you, Caleb Silver, for being on the show. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights and your life with us. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. That's it for now, folks. If you'd like to stay in touch with the show, you can contact me directly at eric at onairbrands.com. That's eric, E-R-I-K, at onairbrands.com. And if you aren't already subscribed to the show, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or any other podcast podcast